Thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for time in your word and we're grateful for this day. Uh, it's always a joy to be with the saints. And we've been brought into it by the grace of your Son. We're grateful for that. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're, uh, there was a verse, not a verse. It's bad when your pastor thinks a quote by Lord Chesterfield is a verse. Um, at our Bible study on Wednesday night, um, I had thrown this quote in. We were talking about a saving faith and a saved faith. And um, this quote had jumped out at me. And as I, as I went away from the Bible study in a couple other situations, the quote came back to me and came up again. So I was thinking about it this morning in the tub. And uh, it's right there on the top of the left-hand side. I have never yet found a man inattentive to the person he feared or to the woman he loved. And it's just a truism. How you attend measures something. It's almost like something you cannot, it's so self-evident, you can't deny it. You know perfectly well you measure other people's care for you by it. It's how we want to have our children think we care for them by attending to them and wiping their noses and changing their diapers and paying for their college. We know this is true. And as Christians, sometimes the culture of Christianity is so comfortably arranged so that nobody really has to pay much attention. Just carries you along, kind of a, a stream that you get into the right place at the right time, and then the Sundays. I grew up in Sunday schools in the in the south, in the east, and you got into Sunday school, and they had your number. It was like the NSA. They you sh you had a packet next year. All of a sudden, they knew you were going to be in the next grade. It was amazing. They had your name printed on tithing envelopes. I talk about guilt. You had to actually throw away an envelope with your name on it instead of putting a quarter in it. I brought that up. Oh, the culture of the church. The culture of the church steps in and says, we'll take care of it. Have you ever worried about that in terms of uh, the civil government? Whenever, some of you are libertarians, I know, but some of you are not. So it's just the idea that the more engaged in running your life someone else is, the less you attend to those things. Now the problem is, when the church takes it, picks it up, the church is often wrong. Um, I am grateful that we don't have an Episcopal system here. Not that I mind Episcopal systems, but that everything is just a reflection of what I think. I'm glad I have church officers who do what they want. <laughs> and then most of the parishioners do what they want. Um, to keep us from making those errors in other people's lives. It's not that the person doesn't need someone else to run their life, but they should be attending, not becoming less attentive, they ought to be attending to that guidance. 
And it's not the church that should be running your life, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that should be running your life. Hebrews 2, therefore, we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Have you ever known some, what is called, you know, the quote Christians, who maybe they were in that stream where the church and the church culture was carrying them along, and then they got caught in a little backwater eddy, and they wandered off the, you know, the mainstream for a while. They weren't as involved, and they weren't going to any Bible studies, and you kind of figure the Bible itself had dust on it in their house, and... and uh, we know what drifting away is. You meet Christians you knew a long time ago, and you find that they have not so much wandered into Baal worship or something like that, or, or uh, shot somebody, but that they have drifted. Now, when he says this, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That came after, that's verse 1 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. That means all of chapter 1 was in front of it. And when he says, therefore, pay closer attention, you should go, oh, if I was to just obey that right on the surface, I should go back and read chapter 1. I should pay closer attention to what just happened to me in a verse. In chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews is throwing various Old Testament scriptures at the wall and, and displaying them and saying, look at this, this one's about angels, look, this one's about the Messiah. Back and forth, there's Psalms and there's Deuteronomy and there's Isaiah. And he's throwing this at you saying, don't you think, don't you see, can't you realize that the Messiah is more important than angels? And so he says, therefore, we must pay the closer attention because if we've encountered something greater than angels, it needs you might say, it deserves a greater attentiveness. Something I have run across is more important. For if the message declared by angels was valid, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The reason he quoted all those passages the primacy of the Messiah over the angels, is a lot of people are into angels. A lot of people are into worshiping St. Michael the Archangel. And the Old Testament law, delivered by angels, messengers of God, had all sorts of punishments attached to it, and the writer of Hebrews says, you know, the reason we have to pay closer attention is because just the sheer degree of importance between these two means that that attention will reveal a great, much greater salvation. And because it relieves a, 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 reveals a much greater salvation, the punishments attached to failing to take it up are going to be that much greater. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect? 
We're supposed to attend closely the greatness of the salvation. Now that great salvation here in verse, uh, in the verse 3, it was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to by to us by those who heard him. And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his own will. So your salvation is hung out in front of you to pay closer attention to. Because in the realm of metaphysics, and he had quoted Old Testament scriptures regarding that, this has got the weight of the Messiah teaching it, the weight of his holy apostles teaching it, the miraculous attending to it, and then the own change in you. Supposing, of course, that there is a change in you. We're supposed to be attending closely to that. How closely? First off, there was a proto-attention that needed to be achieved. Proto-attention. That's not a word, but feel free to use it. And that was what he had done in chapter 1. His appeal to the scriptures. It, it's secondary to the importance of the gospel, Christ's superiority to the angels, but the fact that he attended to the scriptures and a tight reading, uh, was, if I were looking at Hebrews 1, <clears throat> he argues in verse 5, to, For to what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire? But of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. He goes on in this, this rather nuanced understanding of the Old Testament. Rather once you see it, you're going, oh my goodness. You've got a responsibility to attend closely to your salvation, to your God, to the superiority of Christianity, to things that had preceded it, even from God, not just false religions, but also to the path of that information coming to you. If you don't know the Word of God, Attention to Jesus is not really, um, well, have you ever been in love? You don't have to, you know, you don't have to make an expression. Uh, it. Or, but I have heard that in the f- female contingent, they do things like save the letters, okay? Tie them up with a piece of lavender and a ribbon and put them in a box, cedar-lined, probably with an engraved heart on the lid. Now, they are sick, sick creatures, and yet they do this. And not only do they do this, I was talking to one young lady, she was writing in her journal. You know, dear diary, loopy eye over the heart over the eye. Now my misogyny is probably very plain, but um, that 
And, and I asked her, I said, do you go back and read this? At any point in your life? Oh, yeah. It's because, you know, you're, you're, you're laying out your life in this journal. Okay? So they have that as a hobby, journaling, and they go back to it because it's interesting. Now, for me, I like to write uh, stuff. I like to write fiction. And um, I like to go read my stuff because I'm darned impressed. I love reading my stuff. Just like someone, some girl goes back and reads your journal. Why do we both do it? Because we both really value it. A lot. I've heard that the Bible is the Word of God. Not in our catechism, not in the statement that we would give as a statement of faith, where the Bible is the Word of God and inerrant in everything that it affirms in the original autographs. And so you know you're orthodox. We should be answering not whether we could give the orthodox answer, but can we find ourselves being the kind of human being that would react if they really believed that God had spoken? Am I in the scriptures learning? Did I have that proto-attention to hear God somehow, somewhere? And even if it's not the scripture, when God says in the scriptures that he also reveals himself in nature, are you walking around in the big world going, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Are you, are you beginning to see a God that must be attended to? Because how shall you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? So you attend to this greatness and you attend to the path that took you to it. Now, attention is not, as you see, you have picked up on this probably. Attention is such a part of our life. We're already attentive, very attentive. It's a matter of to whom are we attentive? To whom do we expect the attention to be given? You want to attend to God, because you don't want to force God to attend to you. <laughs> That's, you know, the way that your father used to say, I'll, mom says, I think the boys need a spanking. I'll attend to that in a moment. The word attend to it becomes, you know, heavy with portent. Second Peter 1.19 here on the left hand side says, and we have the prophetic word made more sure. You will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Now, just like you don't want, you want to attend to God and not have him attend to you. But oddly enough, when we don't attend to God, we don't, we don't stop and think about whether God's going to attend to us. We have stopped attending to him so we can attend to ourselves. Even when we study the Bible. It's shared ignorance moments when you get into a Bible study. Well, I think that means, you know, and off you go with some speculation. It's not a matter of your own interpretation. You might not understand what it's about, 
But whatever the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit wanted to say. And if I'm going to say it says something, I better be sure I've got a link to that Holy Spirit, that I know what, as best as man can know, what that passage is about. Because it's not a matter of our own interpretation. We have even turned the church and Bible study into a place of self-attention, where people, the passage that was read this morning out of Corinthians, where people are going, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Are you not acting like mere men? Some people are out there, the leaders themselves, are out there trying to get followers after themselves with their own speculative interests. Because they want to be attended to. And some of the worst church fights in history have been because Christian leaders didn't think someone was attending to them adequately. Drift is going to happen. You can't expect without the, this thing measured in your life and done something about that you won't drift. I mean, it's almost you could write the story if you're writing like a short story about the life of the Christian who doesn't pay any attention. It, it writes itself, right? You could, you could come up... <coughs> I was just reading Dostoevsky, not because I wanted to be able to say that in church. Okay? I was reading some Dostoevsky yesterday, and Dostoevsky is really good. Uh, really good in describing mental constructs of his characters, how they are thinking about things. Their thoughts are on the page, and the, and the vagaries of thought are on the page. You could write, if, you, if I gave you the assignment, write a short story about a Christian who doesn't pay attention to his Christian life. And you could say, I could do that standing on my head. Because I know exactly, exactly how he's going to be treating people, what he's going to be caring about. He's going to be drifting to someplace else. Oh, he's doing stuff. He may even be faithful in church attendance. Hebrews 12. Now, I just thought of the Hebrews 2 passage because I thought of the Hebrews 12 passage after I thought of the Chesterfield quote. And I worked my way back and as a matter of paying attention. And the attentiveness I was looking at was down here later in Hebrews 12 when he's talking about what we have come to in Christ. Um, but I wanted to start at verse 14 because it picked up some personal ethics issues there. Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fail to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it the many become defiled, that no one be immoral or irreligious, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So what are you told to have? Before all this gets down to it, you're supposed to be peace, peaceful, and you're supposed to be holy. And that piece of that holiness ought to be in the pursuit of God. Because I know in this peace and holiness, I am being warned that if I don't have them, I will never see the Lord. Those are on the positive side. The negative side, 
is not be bitter, immoral, or irreligious. Esau was that way, and he was that way because he was in the pursuit of some of the most basic of lusts, a bowl of food. He did not value the birthright. He sold it for a bowl of food. Because the bowl of food to Esau at that moment meant more than his birthright. Now his brother tricked him out of the blessing, but birthright he sold fair and square. Ever known somebody like that? Well, she's really, really attractive. Is she a Christian? Well, no, but, you know, she's a bowl of porridge. And I would be happy to sell my birthright for that bowl of porridge. <laughs> bowl of porridge. Pudding. What was it, soup? What was it? What is it? What did uh, Jacob make for Esau? Lentils. Oh, yeah, we're the lentil capital. Bear that in mind. Bible connections. You know people all the time who make that irreligious, immoral act because they decided, I'm going to attend to myself. Rather than attend to God, I'm going to attend to myself. The phrase, root of bitterness, which, you know, I'm against bitterness, but there might be more to it than just that grinding teeth dislike of somebody who has wronged you. I mean, that's bitterness. And it, it, but I think it expands bigger than that. That grinding teeth annoyance at somebody who has wronged you, which you must forgive, and which you must confess as sin, the, the, the idea or the phrase might come out, the quote might come out of Deuteronomy 29. I have it here on the left-hand side. Beware, lest, any, lest there be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Lest there be among you a root-bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be saved, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This would lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord would not pardon him, but rather the anger of the Lord. And his jealousy would smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book would settle upon him, and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. Hmm. This person who has this turning aside for himself, I will not get into trouble for this, I shall be safe, blesses himself, that ends up being, both in the general sense, a bitterness in the kingdom, but also it generally encourages bitterness in people. Why do I say it encourages bitterness in people? What is, what is it based on? You're running into the lack of attention to you. 
Do you remember the movie Sixteen Candles? Molly Ringwald. They forgot her birthday because her sister was getting married on the same day, and her sister was an awful person. And Molly Ringwald was wonderful, and everybody was ignoring her. Ever had people ignore you? I made a man bitter doing that once, real bitter. It wasn't my it was my fault. I mean, I didn't do it intentionally, but I wouldn't look him in the eye when he talked to me because I was probably nervous about looking him in the eye. And he thought I was not attending to him. And he was bitter for years. We know how valuable attention is. We demand so much of it from our kids, from our spouse, from our friends. And if you think your friends may spend a little more time with a new friend, ever see that happening? Well, they're not attending to you. You, you. you measure attention like one of the hairy thunderer gods of antiquity because you have got to be served. This is what's awful about so much of this sin, this lack of peace, this lack of holiness, because you serve you, immorality, irreligion, and bitterness become the standard. You become a world-class jerk in service to yourself. Oh yeah, people can fake religion. People can uh, get all legalistic about morality. People can put on a happy face, claim not to be bitter, because they know in Moscow bitterness is really not not allowed. But I still know a lot of bitter people. I can't find bitter people among those who've attended to God, who stand before him wanting his approval of them, not his attention. Afterwards, verse 17, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. This is Esau. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You, yeah, you might come to the realization that, oh, golly, I missed. What did I miss? I don't even know. And you could be all weepy and cryy and want to walk the aisle again. If we ever had a, one of those. You'd want to make another promise for Jesus. You've got to stop attending to yourself, and you have to start attending to God. Pay closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift. And you have drifted, not to an inattentive life, but to a life of attention on something else, someone else. It is the source of all the problems. And when he says that, when he says that we should be striving for that peace and that holiness, and that we should stay away from those things that would cause the bitterness, immorality, and irreligion. He says that pursuing that being um, too late, there's a too late quality. We can't neglect this great salvation, we can't not pay attention to it, and then think that even your pursuit of it at the last minute, would Jesus forgive you at the last minute? Yes, if you were real. But the problem is you're such a fake person. By the time you get frightened at the end of your days, then you start trying to throw all these good deeds 
into the um, presence of Santa or God, whatever you conceive him to be, so that you can be getting into his kingdom. Um, I'm not entirely sure that's real. We will be judged justly and accurately. But whatever the case, verse 18, for you have not come, okay? I'm telling you, read, it's always good to read the words on the page. You have not come to what may be touched. We're not big on the visible church. We have a nice little church building. We have a nice little congregation. We have pews. We have a pulpit. We have a sound system. A piano. That may be touched. We don't ever want you to be growing in grace in such a way that you think this somehow is connected to the real church. We have not come to what can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers entreat that no further messages be spoken to them. I was speaking of the Jews at the bottom of Mount Sinai when God was speaking from Sinai to all the people. It was God. He is saying we have not come to that moment. The physicality of the nation of Israel, the physicality of his covenant to them, the physicality of his laws, that moment, which was very exciting spiritually. Moses got to see God on the mountain. The people of Israel got to hear God. Not one of those people saying, I think God's been telling me that I should marry so-and-so. No, they all got to hear it. They all got to be scared. And they all got to say, don't, don't talk to us anymore. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. We've not come to that. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if the attention of your religion could be involved in all sorts of sublimities about incense and high ceilings. And, and I love that stuff because I love good architecture and I love the feelings that buildings can give you. But that's not the faith. It was the Jewish faith, the temple of God in Jerusalem was the Jewish location of the presence of their God. But we've not come to that. You have to know to what you are attending. You are not attending to the physical kingdom. And churches and ministries and movements that try to physicalize it, and most of your attention is to the physical, be warned about it. Verse 22 says, but you have come. So you have not come to those things that can be touched. You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Do you understand to what you are attending. I've told a number of people in the last few days, as I've been in various conversations, that there are people who start to attend a religion. It's a sad, and when it's your religion, when it's your church, they start attending to, ah, oh, good sermon, pastor. Oh, 
You don't want those people. You want people who realize they haven't come to religion. They are people seeking God. They are people that, that they will not be satisfied until they find God. They find God. They don't trust that perhaps the people up front and the people who established this church or what the thinkers of doctrine at this church have found God and so if you sit in the right pews you'll get a little bit of that you know, kind of bounced off the church, the finding of God. You seek God until you find him. And he will be found. Linus, he will be found. What have we come to? Not something dark and sublime, but something exalted and, and holy and sublime. It's not the thunder. It's not the, the, the fear. We have come to something that's like a big party that you want to be well-dressed for. Just men made perfect, the judge of all, angels gathered in festal gathering, Jesus Christ as mediator of a new covenant. And you know from Hebrews what he's talking about there. Out of Jeremiah 31. And sprinkled blood that is more gracious than Old Testament illustrations like Abel's. Abel's blood was crying out for justice. Right? That's what God said. Uh, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. There's more grace in Christ. That's what we have come to. But because it is a positive shift, personal, it has become not physical, not corporate, not a nation, not the group of the church, but you, finding God, every man knows in the new covenant his God. It says when it prophesies the new covenant, what does it say? Um, and no man will say to his brother, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Okay? That's in the Jeremiah 31, the prophecy of the new covenant, which the writer of Hebrews brings up and said, Jesus Christ has mediated this new covenant to you. You have to find the living God in Christ. You, just you, personal, singular. And it's a real positive encounter. It's a real spiritual, not physical encounter. And it still has... Oh, it's not that you say, oh, and it's so gracious that Jesus could forgive everything because he died for all the sins and, and I just, you know, can unload all of that. There's still a concern that you should have. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. You have to attend because no man was inattentive to the person he fears or the woman he loves. And Jesus Christ in the New Covenant is both. He is someone you love and someone you fear. See to it you do not refuse him. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, looking back at the Old Covenant, that shattering physicality of Sinai and the tablets and Moses and the punishments and much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This is not law and grace. It is law and grace. But it is the God who wants to be attended to, 
who handed law to the people of Israel and he's handing grace to the new covenant and he wants to be attended to. He is measuring whether you have sought him or not. If you reject him who warns from heaven, because he is somebody, we are not a a church who lives on uh, the definitions of, of certain theological ideas. We are people who have met the living God. His voice then shook the earth but now he has promised, yet, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. The new covenant is an increase of the demand of God. It is not a decrease. It is not, you know, enlightenment for the lazy man. You know, you had to be kind of a Pharisee to get along with the old covenant, right? Just, oh man, all these rules, all these laws, boy, I'm going to do them. I would even strap little boxes onto my head. I'm going to become a ninja for for Yahweh. Oh, good thing Jesus comes along, because that just makes it all easy. I don't have to think about him at all. I just have to say, Jesus, forgive me. And he's so nice, and he always forgives. It lets you know that I was going to kick this people of Israel down a flight of stairs and it was going to be physical and it was going to hurt. I'm going to shake more than that. Heaven and earth. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of what is shaken as of what has been made in order that what cannot be shaken may may remain. And we have a choice between thinking we can take the grace and shall we therefore sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? We know that when we've moved from law to grace, we have moved up in our relationship to God. It is for those who have attended to him, who have sought him. And if you seek him, you're no longer seeking you. It's almost the thing you want to tell that friend of yours that's got that hissy fit about someone not paying attention to them. I don't think she paid attention to me. Sometimes hear it from old people about their family. They didn't do right by me. You just want to tell them, seek the Lord. It's a positive way of putting it. Seek the Lord instead of yourself, you sad, sad person. You're about yourself. God is not making it easier for those who want to attend to something else. He has made those who attend to him find a path that works. For the people that had sought God under the old covenant, it was a hard go. When you seek God under the new covenant, you find him. And his grace is there. And his gifts are there. It's a great salvation. It's all the angels gathered in festal gathering. It is the presence of the Son as mediator of the new covenant. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Those of you who have walked into the new covenant, you were seeking God 
Who knows where, how, what the story is. But when you got there, when you found him, you received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not a church that has the pastor fail horribly, miserably, morally, embarrassingly. It's not the death of a church that can't grow with the times. It's, yeah, you don't have to worry about that. You know the living God. Your religion is the new covenant. It's shared with all of those who are in the new covenant. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Grateful worship with reverence and awe. Is the idea of seeking God an annoyance to you? I don't want to, I don't want to get any promises, like I'm going to read my Bible or anything. I don't, why do you have to make so many expectations? Why do you have to be so? Why does this have to be? Why can't we have more fun? We can have more fun. You can run your own life. I mean, nobody's making you be a Christian, for heaven's sake. You can be a fake, a non-Christian, you can be a fake Christian, you can be a real Christian, whatever you, you do, it's your choice. It's, it measures you. Those who have gone to Christ have found something which they are very grateful for. And our worship becomes, comes out before him with reverence and awe. As it says here, for our God is a consuming fire. Now it doesn't tell us what, well, do you mean to say that Christians are, I don't, don't worry about the theology, feel it. Say to yourself, what is he what is he reaching into my guts and doing to me? He is saying, my God, because he deals with a greater salvation in Christ than he dealt with with the Jews, the punishments and the rewards are greater. The atmosphere is different, but we have sought God. We have answered it by our um, attention to him. He loves to be attended to. He is pleased with those who seek it. But don't think he's just all grace, who's just in the business of handing out grace to all the people who don't want to seek him and then getting themselves into some sort of trouble. You know, you know, the kind of trouble you got into. Um, and then they get to run to Jesus and he picks them up and carries them. He is gracious. But he knows who you are. He is somebody. He's not, it's not just that definition of grace. He is someone who exists. And just like you feel when someone doesn't attend to you, and then comes back with all sorts of apology. Oh, I'm so sorry. I should have sent you an invitation to that party that I had with all the ladies except you. And you're looking at him, narrowed eyes. I don't know if I believe you. God is a judge as well, a consuming fire. He can spot neglect. And you can't say to yourself, like Deuteronomy said in his heart, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Just thank God. Dear Lord, help us as Christians. See the greatness of our salvation. Help us each, not as a group, Lord, 
each attend to it. Grow in grace, grow in knowledge, grow in reverence and awe for your son and his covenant that he gave us in his death. Lord, we'd like to be a gathering of real believers, people who are pulled together by what we've encountered in meeting you. We would have the attention to ourselves undone that we might attend to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.